for road biking, I had a um, uh, um, an Ericsson Impulse. No, a Davidson Impulse. Sorry about that. Yeah. Built by Bill Davidson with Campy Record. It had the Delta brakes and Campy clipless pedals, which weighed about five pounds a piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the classic don't slow you down Delta brakes. Oh, yeah. Those things were, yeah, they're horrible, but they sure look good and it was worth it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aesthetics play an important role. I, I would, I think we'd all agree on that. When I did, sure do. I tell my customers, I don't feel guilty if you want to do something just because it looks good. That's half the fun. <laughs> Everybody again, and welcome to another episode of the Fiberside Chats. As always, I'm Dan Steinley, one of your hosts, and I'm Sean Small. And today we have the absolute pleasure of having Carl Strong on. Carl, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Carl Strong from Bozeman, Montana. I run Strong Frames and Pursuit Cycles. And we are going to be questioning Carl about the production of his amazing frames kind of the ethos of running a small business and there's tons and tons of good information in this episode so stay tuned well we'll start off from the top um how long have you been in the bike industry and how did you get your start carl well i've been in the bike industry officially for 26 years now you know as a professional person working in the industry and i just got my start really from being a bike racer and and uh, you know, a bike, a crazy bike nut from um, as long back as I can recall. I've, my, I've been, my life has been centered around bikes really my entire life. It's just sort of um, almost like it, it's just a part of me, always has been, I assume it always will be. What kind of racing were you doing? Well, you know, when I was a little kid, I did BMX racing. It was in the 70s and the early 80s, and BMX was huge back then. Uh, and then um, when I got into college, I got into bicycle road racing, and that was in the early 80s. And then, um, and I kind of rode, I, my dad was a road racer in the 50s and 60s, so he had bikes hanging up. And um, so I, uh, I, I would ride those, and I got more serious about it when, um, right about the time I graduated high school. Then mountain biking rolled along, and then I got into that also. So I spread myself pretty equally between mountain biking and road biking until about 10 years ago when I've sort of become almost exclusively a roadie just because of time more than anything. What was your favorite bike that you owned from that era? From back then? Yeah. Oh, I had this aluminum GT Pro BMXer, which was cool. Um, with the graphite tough wheels and the three-piece cranks and all that. And then for road biking, I had a, um, a, um, an Ericsson Impulse. No, a Davidson Impulse. Sorry about that. Yeah. Built by Bill Davidson with Campy Record. It had the Delta brakes and Campy clipless pedals, which weighed about five pounds a piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the classic don't slow you down Delta brakes. Oh, yeah. Those things were, yeah, they're horrible, but they sure look good and it was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Aesthetics play an important role. I, I would, I think we'd all agree on that. 
When I did, sure do. I tell my customers, I don't feel guilty if you want to do something just because it looks good. That's half the fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When did you start? When did you start making bikes then, Carl? Have you been, have you kind of always been a tinkerer? Well, yeah, I grew up sort of tinkering. My dad encouraged it. You know, we had a little shop area and plenty of tools. So I always was able to do things. And um, I started going to uh, a metal shop class and wood shop class in junior high. And um, I kind of went into those classes, you know, being a BMXer and having learned how to work on my, my bikes. And um, so it's just kind of natural progression for me to, uh, you know, try to build a bike. And so when I was in college and I couldn't afford to really buy a nice bike and back then the best bikes you could buy were you know made by custom builders and i thought well let's give this a, sh- a whirl you know and i did and i did a horrible job and it was a terrible bike but i kept at it you know and ultimately got to a, a point where they were starting to get pretty good and friends of mine wanted them and i'd sell them to the friends and then you, j- you just sort of go from there do you remember that first bike what what was that first bike that you made well, the it, the very the very first bike that I built, I raced. I still own it, and it's um it's actually the second bike. The very first bike I built for a friend, believe it or not, he just wanted it and he hung it up. I don't know if he's ever raced, ridden it at all, and it was a kind of a steel time trial bike. The second bike I made was a, a steel mountain bike, and I I rode that and raced it for years and years, and it held together and it's still together, and I could put it together and ride it if I wanted. I have it hanging in the basement now, but I thought it'd be fun to put it in a shadow box someday and hang it in the shop. Yeah. Or, or dirt drop it. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, it basically was a, just make it a gravel bike again. Yeah. It's, um, it's a pretty funny bike though. It's, and it's old, you know, 26 inch wheels, cantilever brakes It's made out of Columbus max. It, it, it's a, it's not anything I'd really want to, have out there representing me in any way other than <laughs> my first bike. So, <laughs> so I think a lot of frame builders started out doing a much better job than I did. You know, back when I started, there was no resources. You couldn't buy tools readily and there wasn't the internet. You know, they're just, I was in Bozeman, Montana, so there wasn't any frame builders to go talk to. So it, um, you know, it's it just a lot, it took a lot more trial and error, I think for me than uh, would take a person nowadays. That was going to be my next question is how did you, did you just teach yourself to do this? You know, when, when we, we, we've been reading about, about what you've been doing and it sounds like you do a lot of consultation for other frame builders you know, across all materials, but it sounds like there wasn't anything like that for you back then. So was this really just all a process of trial and error for you? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I got, when I first started, it was, there was the Pateric manual, which back then was like a Bible and it was, it was the best thing that there was then. And it, you know, it helped a lot. Um, it had a lot of standards and measurements and things like that. For example, if you, you know, how far apart are water bottle bosses, the Pateric manual could tell you, where do you put your brake bridge? The Pateric manual could tell you, but it was, I think, really geared for a person that wanted to build a bike as a hobby. You know, it told you how to do things with wood, you know, tools and stuff like that. But um, then I went to UBI, had a TIG seminar. It was a three-day seminar. I think it was $300 at the time. And um, I, I drove down to Ashland and um, Gary Helfrich, who was one of the founders of um, Merlin Metalworks and Fat 
taught this and it, and they basically I had been welding frames, but I didn't know how other bike makers welded frames. And he did. So when I went to this um, little class thing, um, I learned a lot about the types of torches people used and the types of fillers and this, you know, machine set setups and things like that. Um, so that really um, advanced me quite a bit. And then over the years, you know, later on down the road, as I developed um, my business and, and brought in uh, employees, um, I hired people that had been working at other um, bike manufacturers. So and I always just, you know, got knowledge from them and, and it just kind of, you know, sort of built over time. So what made you want to start a business? You built some frames. You said you sold some bikes to friends for basically the cost of materials. At what point did you decide to make this a viable thing? Was it kind of an overnight epiphany or something that you've been thinking about for a while? You know, did you, how did that process start? Well, you know, I, I pretty much always wanted to be a business owner. I mean, even when I went to college, I had really no, no drive towards the end goal of college. I think it was more just sort of, uh, you know, something to keep me busy while I tried to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. and, and what, and what was, what, what did you get a degree in? Uh, well, I never did graduate. I went, um, I finance, um, was what I majored in and I went to school off and on for nearly 10 years. Um, I took a lot of classes <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'd, I'd go and then something would come up and then I'd quit and I'd go do this something or other. And bike racing really got in the way. I was pretty passionate about that. And I sold real estate for a few years and Whoa. that was interesting, but, um, uh, I just always wanted to be a, a business person. And then this seemed like the confluence of, you know, all my interests, wanting to be in business, liking to work with my hands, loving bikes. And, and so it, it, it seemed to make sense. Um, so that's kind of how that happened. And then you developed strong and started making mostly bikes out of steel, titanium, aluminum. Did, did it go steel, aluminum, and then titanium in that in that order? Well, let's see. Yeah, I did because that's how you know. Basically, what drives demand is the is the Pro Tour, right? So when I started, that's what they rode. They rode steel, and then um, they never really did ride titanium. You know, they kind of went from aluminum to carbon fiber. There was some tie in there, but not much of it. And then sort of after after aluminum got surpassed by carbon fiber as the lightweight material or sort of during that same time, titanium was an, was an alternative um, that really offered a lot of uh, just toughness. You know, you can just beat up on it and you don't have paint to worry about. It's lightweight. It feels wonderful. It's got a lot of great attributes. So, um, uh, I think what the the threshold that people were willing to pay uh, for a bike kind of went way up um, as the carbon bike sort of reset the norm for uh, frame price, which made titanium even more attractive because it wasn't relatively so expensive mm -hmm. as it had been prior to carbon bikes becoming the, the norm for a high-end bike. If that makes sense, I don't know if I said that very well. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, makes it sense. Makes, it makes a lot of sense. So you've worked with yeah. all, all of these materials for a number of years. At what point did you 
you know, at what point did you kind of think that carbon fiber is the material, the only material that I really want to work with? Well, it, um, it's not, I still really like steel and titanium, but what I do, what I've done throughout my entire time building frames is I've always enjoyed understanding the material characteristics um, how they apply to the bicycle and the performance as it's defined for every individual bike, and then learning how to work with that material to, to get those um, those qualities out of it. So I started with steel because that's what bikes were made of, and then I moved to um, titanium or aluminum because that's what bikes were made of. Then I moved to titanium and so on and so forth. So carbon fiber was just an it's just a natural evolution of my um approach to frame building you know there's a lot of frame builders out there that they like to build a frame out of x material and they're never going to change that's all they want to work with and that's fine and they do a wonderful job and that's their personality my personality is one where i want you know i want to explore um uh all the materials and all the different ways to work with the materials. For example, with um, steel, you can build it with a lugged construction, a fillet brace construction, or a TIG welded construction. Just the same with carbon fiber, you can build it with a tube to tube construction, a modular monocoque construction, or fewer parts, you know, a, mo a monocoque construction. Um, so, you know, I like to understand how all the different construction processes. Um, sort of define the end product also yeah it's kind of one of the fun things of following your journey is you've done almost everything how long did you work in the tube to tube carbon frame building side of things oh i did that for probably i think i did that first one in 2007 ish maybe and then did it until maybe 2010 oh okay um before i Took it off my price list. We in 2011 for NABS. Is that when you won Best Carbon down in Austin? Is that correct? Oh, maybe that's what. Yeah, I, I don't even remember what year it is. I have terrible memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I write everything down. If it's not written down, I don't remember it. That's, but um, that's how it was. Austin. I remember that. Yeah, that was a big <laughs> surprise. I was pretty excited about that. You're listening to the Fiberside Chats, hosted by Ruckus Composites, the United States leader in carbon fiber inspection and repair. So kind of shifting gears, what made you want to, you know, start Pursuit and get back into carbon, you know, not in the tube to tube construction, but into the whole, you know, creating everything from mold and tool and creating all your own geometry and, you know, creating your own engineered structure. What was that process like? Or, you know, when did you have that moment of like, I'm, I'm going to shift gears here? Yeah, that's, you know, that's probably one of the most exciting things about this whole deal for me is that um, I was building these two, two bikes and I really like them. They're light. You know, it's a lot of flexibility and the way that they can be, um, constructed and um nick crumpton's a good friend of mine and he was you know really early on doing some pretty incredible um uh joining processing um with really good results and he was generous enough to share a lot of what he'd learned with me 
And so I, I really felt like I had a good handle on the tube to tube, but there was, there was one element that sort of makes carbon fiber different from metal that was sort of missing from that process for me, which was the ability to really fine tune highly localized areas of the bike in very specific directionality. Um, but, and maybe get the weight down a little too, but although I'm not much of a weight weenie, but, um, I, I, I really didn't have the resources to kind of pursue those, um, that, that sort of, uh, molded, you know, monocoque construction process, um, in, until there was just sort of this coming together of these people, um, primarily my two founding partners, you know, my wife and I, Loretta and I are partners in pursuit with Bill Cochran and Jared Nelson. Jared Nelson is a, um, he's our engineer. And um, I think it was between all, all of us, the team, the, the four of us on the team, that we have the resources that actually made it possible. And I kind of feel like, you know, doing this molded process sort of adds a, a new dimension to frame design that just wasn't available um, with metal bikes. And that's what's been, you know, probably one of the most exciting parts for me. And is that new, that new element is that kind of continuing on what you were saying about the tunability of the builds. Does this molded construction give you the ability to, to, to develop bikes in, in ways, you know, more specifically geared towards individual riders? Well, not so much individual riders, but just the characteristics that we want. So if you took a metal bike, you have the, you know, steel has the same modulus, no matter what steel it is. So you tune the bike with, um, uh, tube diameter or to a lesser degree wall thickness. So it's the, the tube de- geometry with the carbon fiber bikes. You have the tube geometry, you have the modulus, the modulus can be changed unlike metal, unlike steel. But then, um, aside from the geometry and the modulus of the material, you have the um, laminate schedule um, and how you orient those fibers, where you put the fibers, what types of fibers you put where, um, the shapes of the fiber plies, all those things add a higher level of control. You can strip away material where it doesn't need to be. You know that saying of, um, you know, laterally stiff and vertically compliant becomes mm-hmm. a lot more realistic in a carbon fiber bike than it would ever be in a metal bike. Yeah. Following on that note, I've noticed your new 2019 model, the lead out, uh, drops a significant amount of weight over the Mark one. Can you, is, is that just mm-hmm. that continual refinement and improvement process, uh, understanding kind of some of the stresses or where did that big weight drop come from? Yeah, I think it just, you know, we, and, and I, and I'm not an engineer, you know, Jared's the engineer, so I don't want to overstep my bounds, but, you know, Jared, you know, Jared is a, he's a, um, he's got a PhD in mechanical engineering with an emphasis on, um, composites. He's got a test lab, um, where we can do all of our material testing. We have our own testing facilities here as well. 
And he's really big on closing the loop between analytical analysis and experimental analysis. And so he's really, he's just insisted that we test everything to death. And it, it just takes a lot of time to do that, especially at our small size. So you can analyze things, you can run all the models, but I mean, it doesn't take much for a model to be off. And he, he just wants to make sure everything is, is um, thoroughly vetted. So we were probably a lot more conservative than we needed to be initially. Um, so, you know, like we, you could probably say we were overbuilt last year. Um, and we just had the time to, you know, assure that we, that we were before we started shedding more material off the bike. And what are some of the other changes from the Mark one to the per, to the, um, excuse me, the, to, the pursuit is the company, out. the lead out is the bike. Yeah. What are some well, of the, what are some of those changes? Well, the main changes are going to be, um, the, uh, the, um, the layup is the primary change. Um, we've changed a few of the processes, which probably have more to do with us than the customer. The tool sets the same. So the geometry and appearance of the frame is the same. And we'll use that tool set um, probably for a couple more years because we, there's really nothing we can do to it to improve it, we don't think. Um, but the minute there is, we'll, we'll change the tool set if we need to. But so far, it's, it's you know, um, it's on trend. It's, you know, what people want. It, it, the geometry performance is really good. It's exactly what we designed it to be. Um, we'll continue to shed weight. We've um, um, got some ideas for new a new brake configuration, and we hope to add a fork very soon. That's our own. The fork that we use right now is a Columbus fork. Oh, yeah. And then for the geometry of the bike, did you develop it yourself? Yes. Yeah. And then it's going to you said it's going to stay the same for a while. Yeah. I mean, I don't see any reason to change it. You know, I mean, we'll change, we'll add another bike model at some point that's got a different purpose. But for the purpose that this bike was designed for, I just don't see anything that I want to change on it really at all. And it's, you know, the geometry was, is basically, you know, I've built thousands of frames for thousands of people and you start to see patterns in what people really respond to what elements of the bike design did they really like and um after a while you you know you you just kind of those are your go-to things and so you you, i just took all those things and put them into this design and unlike strong frames strong frames is really customer centric and we say um all right this frame that we're going to build is all about you let's you know let's find out what it is that we want to build with pursuit cycles it's more about the bike it's it's us saying hey this is what we think is the perfect bike and we want to share it with you so it's we're flipping the script Uh, on that same note on that question you said you know you've built so many frames over your life what is one of those things that you've noticed that people like or kind of that trend in well, the, one of in the, the geometry, one of the things that I really think separates um, the pursuit from most other carbon bikes you can buy um, is that we went really low on the bottom bracket. We have an 80 millimeter bottom bracket drop. That's great. And so that's yeah. Gonna, yeah, that's going to limit, you know, the crank length 
Um, and you know, it's not going to be a great crit bike. You don't want to probably be riding it aggressively with over a 175 crank max. Most riders would probably be better off with the 172 and a half, but it makes the bike handle so wonderfully. Um, and it, it really, it makes a tremendous difference. And then since we did lower the bottom bracket, we, we, we had to lengthen the chainstay a little because, you know, as that chainstay swings up, it gets effectively shorter. Yeah. So the chainstay number is 415, but the effective chainstay length is 407. Um, and, and then, you know, you, you blend those elements with the overall wheelbase. And then, um, you know, that wheelbase is affected by the combination of the top tube length and the stem. So, you, you know, I've just, I just learned what the balancing act is, which stems to put with which top tubes. And then we can take that cock, cockpit length and we can apply it to the person's body measurements to get them on the right bike. How else is the lead out a different bike? You know, why should, why should somebody buy a lead out versus any other bike? Or why should somebody come to you versus another high end custom builder? Well, I think, you know, as we're not, a you know, a bleed out isn't custom. So, you know, if they really truly want a bike that has custom everything, then, you know, someone like Nick Crumpton is going to be a better call. But I think the person that is going to want to lead out is one, they're not going to feel the need for a custom geometry. They want to buy what, you know, what we offer or what Colnago offers or Pinarello or any number of other high-end carbon bikes that aren't custom. Um, and, and the reason a person would choose Pursuit is because they want something that's uh, more special, more unique, um, just, you know, a, a fine, you know, well-made thing with a lot of attention to craft. They just like nice things. Um, and it's just a very, very special bike. Um, it's not, you know, it's produced, you know, they're produced one at a time to order in a small shop in the United States by craftsmen. And, um, and there's not very many of them out there. Yeah. We notice you're, you're doing 35 a year, which, you know, yeah. which makes it even more exciting because, you know, it's limited and you're probably never going to see another one, you know, on the same road twice, unless it's a meetup. But what, where does that 35 number come from? I saw you did it with the Mark one and you're doing it with the lead out. Is that just a capacity? issue or is there some like magic number yeah of 35 well what it is is you know it's our capacity right now it's Mm. it's the number of bikes that we can comfortably make now and to increase it we have to um we have to be able to sell enough more to justify bringing a person in and training them which can take a, a long time and cost a lot of money. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that the demand outstrips our availability by enough for a long enough period of time that we can invest in that new person because we don't want, we can't just bring somebody in as a non-skilled laborer and just stick them in the corner and put them to work. We have to bring somebody in and fully commit to them, give them a job that they can be proud of and enjoy and have for a long time. We're a lifestyle business. So it's important to us that our, 
team is, um, you know, is our long-term people that want to be with us for, a, you know, forever, basically, and that we can um, take the time to invest as much time and effort into them as necessary to get them to the level of craftsmanship that um, we need to have from them in order to, you know, meet our, our goals. Yeah, that's something we found same out here. We've been in business 10 years and even just finding people that have that desire to work with composites is kind of a different mindset because it's similar to working with other materials, but there's always like a difference or a tweak to how you do something, whether it's different drill drill bits or processes to machine it or sand it or whatever. It's always, it's always a little different. It is. And you know, people, um, they're so used to metals and woods and you know, it's a combination of the two really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a lot of sanding. It's yeah. It's like wood that's as strong as metal. Yeah. (laughs) You're listening to the Fiberside Chats hosted by Ruckus Composites, the United States leader in carbon fiber inspection and repair. Why, why slim down? Why make one bike at a time? You know, strong seem to be more of a, you know, like a full production facility, you know, many more bikes putting out higher runs, higher numbers of bikes. Why did you decide to change the business strategy and, and only make one at a time, I guess is the other way is, is a better way to ask it. Sure. So one thing, you know, Strong and Pursuit are two totally different entities and they're operated separately. And, you know, Strong Frames is still my baby and still going strong and we're, we're busy and we make, you know, we're making lots of bikes. Um, but Pursuit is, you know, it's, it's just a brand, it's a brand new business and we're trying to you know, learn what our demand is, what people want from us, where they see the value. We have a lot of course correcting that we need to do in the way we offer our product, sell our product, what options we offer. Um, and so we we just wanted to sort of be really slow and careful and methodical and then let sort of the market help us understand how to develop our business practices. I'm hoping that as um, we learn demand, we'll learn how to forecast a little and we'll start putting a few unpainted frames in stock. And then eventually if we get big enough, um, we'll bring paint in house. And then once paint's in house, we should be able to start turning orders around a lot more quickly. And we'll probably move away from that one, one at a time business model. But right now what we're doing since our output is so low is when a person orders a frame, we make it. Um, and that keeps us busy and we don't have time to get out in front of that and, um, uh, stock parts or frames. And we, there's really not a ton, you know, as small as we are and as, um, labor intensive as this job is, there's not a ton of scale in batching anyway, outside of certain things like having, you know, fly kits cut or something like that. So that's kind of, you know, I think it's more of a, a a result of just being such a new business and still learning so much more than anything. Yeah, that's something I was talking about in a meeting yesterday is 
there's not a lot of scalability in composites. It's, you know, to make five parts literally takes five times, almost five times the amount as it takes one part. You know, there's no, there's not a lot of volume incentive sometimes, or it's not, you know, I don't, it's, it's hard. I, I agree. I don't think there is, you know, and it's the same with metal bikes. And I've always been anti-batch on those, you know, because if you have a half done bike, it costs you half what you're going to pay to make it, but you're not getting revenue from it. So why wouldn't you just finish it and then go to the next one? Now, with the carbon fiber bikes, we're hoping that during the dead period of the year, like the August, September, October, we can build up a little bit of inventory so that when people order their bikes in the spring, we can get them their bikes more quickly. Because right now, um, it's a three-month lead time. That's interesting hearing your slow time is our extremely fast time yeah that's our busiest time over here yeah because everybody's had a chance to break their bike yeah (laughs) Yeah, basically everybody's out riding (laughs) yeah well if it wasn't for guys like you maybe i'd be busy then too (laughs) (laughs) and so you said the 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 lead time is is about three months and i like you said that changes kind of on on uh, on the time of year but how long does it actually take how many hours are in uh, the the production of a pursuit bike well i gotta tell you that it's kind of embarrassing to say really but right now it is probably you know 50 60 hours it's a lot yeah that's um, a, that's a lot of time that sounds about right though. yeah it sounds about right yeah i'm hoping we can get it down um you know we're cutting all our own kits right now and we're going to outsource that to a kidding company. We've started a relationship with, we just have to get the patterns to them. We've been so busy. We haven't gotten that done yet, but, and that should knock off good six hours right there. What's the, what's, um, what's the longest time chunk in the, in the production phase? Well, I'd say the longest time chunk is the layup. The, like the initial part layup, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a slow process. <laughs> It is a slow process, and one of the keys to making a quality product is um, accurately laying the plies down. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot of them. There's hundreds of them per frame, and you want them to go down, and you don't want them sliding around on you. And, um, you know, we we have a, a mandrel that we, we build on, but... Um, you know, putting flat material down over three-dimensional shapes is uh, is tough, and you don't want any crimping, and you don't want any bridging, and you don't want any wrinkles. And it's it's one it's just it's really the part where that where frame builders sort of attention to detail and dexterity really shows up. And um, there's big differences between people that are going to be good at it and people that aren't you know some people have it some people don't kind of like tig welding yeah definitely it's like a technical craftsmanship as we kind of call it out here you have to understand like the technical aspects of if something's crimped or wobbly or sliding around or half millimeter off or even five millimeters off how that affects the overall build quality or you know quality of the object or safety of the object as well yeah yeah and we have you know our guy that's running the show now eric rolf is a frame builder he's got a company called alliance bicycles and i mentored him about 11 12 years ago and then he went out on his own he's been in business now for 10 years and he's been successful at it but he's wanted to sort of look 
further down the road to the future. And we're really good friends. And so um, he thought it would be a great opportunity if he came on board to sort of hedge his bet towards the future. And um, so he runs Alliance every other week and then comes up and does the manufacturing of Pursuit every other week. And then I do Strong Frames every other week and Pursuit every other week. And it, it's worked out really well. We've been having a lot of fun. But I guess the reason I brought him up is because he's just so good. He was so good so quickly, and we got him trained so fast. And he um, took us from where we were when he came um, on board, and I think it's been eight weeks now, and he's you know surpassed everything we, we've known and kind of continued to improve things. Yeah, that's a nice balance, too. Sometimes laying that much fiber can get a little monotonous. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he does the and he does the he does it all, really, you know, and then I just kind of run around behind him and help where I can. And then I've got all of the other um, aspects to deal with the marketing, the um, sales, the, um, you know, just all that sort of stuff. Record keeping, we um, document and codify everything. Um, we've got an intranet where all of our policies and procedures are, all of our standard operating procedures, videos, um, pictures, all of our, you know, different cures and layups and just everything's on there. And I spent a lot of time kind of building that because I want to get the company to the point where if anybody has a question, they can just hit the search in the internet and bam, they'll have all the resources right there in front of them. And stuff. Yeah, that's smart. sounds like you're ready to, you know, put the next person in place when the demand's there and go with it, which is cool. Yeah, that's the hope. Yeah. And some, some of my questions are what's some of the testing and QC process. You talked a little bit about it before. Are you doing destructive testing or non-destructive? And you said Jared helps with a lot with that. Yeah. Jared, he's our engineer. And so what we do is Jared, we fly Jared out a few times a year and we go over, um, you know, do design review with him. Um, but whenever we get material, we send a coupon out to him and he does a tensile ten, uh, test and a bin, you know, four point, three point bin test, um, sometimes burn off. But we just always want to validate the um, uh, properties of the processed material. Mm-hmm. So he has all of those, you know, that stuff available to him. He uses digital image correlation and open hole tests when he does tensile okay. so that we can get a little bit of extra information from that. And then we have a fatigue testing machine here in the in the shop so we can do the fatigue test. We have impact testing. We do, you know, visual examination of every part that comes through. We cut up randomized parts. Whenever we change layups, we'll um, cut them up, put them under a microscope, um, you know, check all the laminates, all the ply drops, make sure that, you know, everything looks as as it should. So there's quite a bit of quality control and testing. I mean, more than any, probably any other company our size by a long shot. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like it. Probably even more than some of the big companies. Yeah, and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to do digital image correlation on a complete frame. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you're not, I don't know how familiar you are with it or, or your listeners, but, you know, what it does is it um, 
it, it, there's an out, there's an app that goes with this image that you take and you, you know, you apply a, a um, load to the frame and you take a picture of the deformation and um, it has this little colored map that looks like an FDA map. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's like the whole, instead of having strain gauges put here and there and the other place on the frame, it like turns the frame itself into a ginormous strain gauge. And then you have this colored map and then you can compare it to your finite element analysis and you can literally see how close your analytical model was to what you actually ended up with. And then you can start chasing down the reasons why there's any difference. Are they manufacturing, processing, material differences? You know, so it's it's all about closing that loop between analytical analysis and experimental analysis. Yeah, that's great to hear. You're listening to the Fiberside Chats, hosted by Ruckus Composites, the United States leader in carbon fiber inspection and repair. One of the questions that I had for you was about the uh, on your website, I was reading about the serialization that you guys do. And I was wondering if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit more about that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you are giving everything a part number and giving all that to the customers so they can kind of track the build process. Is that am I am I at all accurate on that? Well, you're close. We we hope to get to that point. What we want to do, at, you know, at a certain point is give the customer a package that really is just kind of like the birthing of their child kind of package. Mm-hmm. You know, here's everything. But I think from a quality control perspective, you know, each frame has nine components. It has a head tube component, seat tube, bottom bracket, two seat stays, two chain stays, and two dropouts. And so every single one of those components is um it's you know it's a making that piece is a is a big deal even if it's a small piece and we record everything that was involved with that piece we put the serial number on that piece and then we set the piece aside sometimes they go into stock sometimes they just go straight into a customer's box of materials but the idea being then all those pieces have a traveler and all those travelers are transferred to the work order and um, they're all physically marked. And then the frame has a physical serial number as well. So that no matter what we have full control over everything that happened when that bike was made from the barometric pressure and temperature to the material, the lot, the test results of that material when we sent it to Jared, so on and so forth. That's cool. And so it's it just the exercise of going through the motions kind of keeps you honest. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And then it sounds like you probably link it back to the the, the carbon roll itself, right? And all the documentation that can come with that, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And we even keep track of the the release that we use. Oh, great. The life of the bladders and stuff. So that if there was ever any problem, we'd be able to get right back to the root of the problem. Right. Very impressive. But I think the most important aspect of that is just the exercise of doing it, the discipline and, you know, making it a routine and just sort of the mentality that occurs in, in you know, with that exercise. Yeah, definitely. It's the quality assurance package of documenting every step and 
you know, you gotta yeah, and creating you, all that and, data. And, yeah. And then people's, you know, attitude towards what they're doing and the importance of it. Yeah. Doing things the right way because it's the right way and that's it. Yeah. So can we, can we shift gears a little bit? Can we talk about, it might be top secret, but can we talk about the NABS bike? Oh yeah. They're not top secret. Okay. Cause I saw it. I initially saw it. I initially saw it on social media and when Sean and I was talking to Sean about the hemp bike, it had since been removed. So we were wondering if it, you know, you know, if it really was top secret. Um, no, the hemp bike, it, we will not be taking that to NAPS. Oh, okay. okay. Well, cool. Let's talk yeah. about, let's talk about the hemp bike and then we can get into the, the NABS bike a little bit. Um, it, the hemp sure. bike looked beautiful. Um, but what was the impetus to, to, to make a bike out of hemp fiber? So, you know, the reason I took the hemp bike down was I underestimated how closely tied to pot hemp is in the minds of people. Huh. Yeah, because I think a hemp, you know, I thought a hemp is a natural fiber, a material, you know. And I mean, I don't have anything against pot, but all the pot jokes, they just were not consistent with the brand we're trying to build. Yeah. So I, I took it down, you know. I mean, we're into so we're into bike performance bikes. We don't, you know, we're not a, a, you know, a dangle bong maker. Yeah, but, a CBD company or something. Yeah, and I have nothing, I have no problem with that stuff at all. I have nothing against it. But it's just not the what I what I wanted to tie our brand to. And um so uh the reason that we did the natural fibers because Jared being in the you know, he's he's a doctorate of fibers and he he focuses on carbon fibers, but he also works with a company called Sunstrand and they're a natural fiber company and there was an engineer that had left that company and was doing some interesting things with snowboards. And I was talking about, you know, working with different materials just for the sake of going through the exercise of working with the materials, because you never know how they're going to differ and what kind of challenges are going to present to you. And working through all of these challenges is just a good way to learn and stretch your legs and get better at understanding stuff. And, a Natural fibers have really good damping qualities. And so, you know, there was the thought that maybe we could, you know, you see it in some bikes too. They put um, like flax in laminates and we thought, well, let's, you know, for fun, let's just make a a molded hemp bike. Because you see hemp all the time where they're lashing together um, bamboo tubes with um, hemp toe that has a, you know, wet resin on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, let's just go the extra mile and let's mold pre-preg hemp because this guy could make pre-preg hemp for us. Amazing. Yeah. And so we did. We molded pre-preg hemp and we made that we made that frame. And it was gorgeous because it's just this beautiful brown color. And I thought, you know, it'd be fun to put um put lights inside of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh wow. Well, there's a Schwinn like that they made a few of about 10 years ago, I think it was a hemp bike as well. Wow. Really? Yeah, and they put lights yeah. inside of the down. We we had one come through here. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they, we lit it up. It looked really pretty. I mean, it's gorgeous. You know, it looked like a lampshade or something. But <laughs> so at any rate, we learned a lot about hemp, you know, I mean, because you just you, you just never know what you're going to what kind of challenges you're going to be confronted with in your head. You know, you think, Oh, we'll we'll just do that. And this and the other thing, just like we always do. And then you try it and it just doesn't work. What was, what were, 
What were some of the takeaways from that project? Well, you know, getting the resins, the big thing, and this is Pat, so Patrick Flaherty is the engineer that developed the material. And I can't tell you exactly what he went through because he was really doing most of the work. And um, he spent a lot of time dealing with ratios to, you know, um, to the actual um, resins and the amount of resins that's in the material and so on and so forth, different weights of material. And so I think the big challenge is we're trying to get those combinations right so that you had something that was that you could work with that cured properly that um uh you know had the right tack that was storable stuff like that and you know like i said i'm not an engineer and um so i i was kind of in the room but i really wasn't doing um a lot of the work yeah it's really really interesting it was a cool thing to see it's kind of a shame that uh the response wasn't exactly maybe i don't know maybe it wasn't what you wanted maybe it wasn't what you expected but a cool project to see nonetheless i i thought it was a, a really interesting venture um into frame well, construction so it was really really cool to see i definitely wanted to bring it up so yeah thanks for yeah, thanks for going and there Jared, our, our engineer he said he told me when i brought it up he's like well you know there's going to be a lot of wisecracking going on and i was like well it won't matter and then um the wisecracking was just more than i I wanted and said, Jared, Jared said, hey, I don't want to tell you. I told you so. But. <laughs> yeah. So, but, do, do you think you'll know. assemble it and ride it at all? Or is it just kind of a, a wall piece? It's a wall piece. Yeah. And so basically the guy that really did most of the work, Patrick, he's got it right now because he has his own consulting company and he's going to go to this big hemp um, trade show. I think it's in Denver at the end of March. And so that'll be in his exhibit and then we'll probably get it back and, you know, exhibit it here or there. And we've got a lot of good pictures of it. So who knows, you know, um, it, it was an exercise that we did. We learned a lot. It was interesting. Um, and we're, you know, we'll kind of keep it on the, on the, you know, back burner and you never know if it will be useful or not. So, so about, about the NABS bike, what are you bringing this year? Well, we're bringing two Mark or two lead outs. Two lead outs. Um, yeah. And, um, cause that's all we make is the lead out, yep. you know, one bike per year, one model per year. One bike to rule them um, all. Yeah. You know, do one thing and do it well. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we're bringing, uh, two lead outs, two different, well, we're bringing two lead out bikes and then one lead out frame. So one frame and then we're bringing an unpainted frame to submit for the for the best layup award i suppose but um one lead out is going to have the new red 12 axs on it oh cool um nb wheels chris king hubs bb headset and then the other one is going to have um the rotor hydro 13 speed oh yeah interesting and that's Envy and Chris King also. So they're going to be two really neat belts. They've got beautiful paint jobs on them. Um, we've got, this will be our first show. This will be our first time ever going into public. This will be the first time anybody's going to have a chance to see a pursuit in person unless they bought one or they live in Bozeman. Wow. That's oh, great. I'm yeah. lo- looking forward to see how well received everything's going to be. 
Are you guys going to have a booth there? We we used to go to NABs, but it doesn't. We might we might pop in to visit. Yeah, we might pop in to visit, but as far as a booth, we haven't done a booth like that in years. Um, yeah, it doesn't really totally align with what we do. Sure. You know, it's yeah, we do we sense. we do OEM consulting and small brand consulting from time to time, but we figured, you know, we word of mouth is really important for us. And a lot of people know who we are, but so people know where we are and, you know, we get emails all the time. Hey, can you help with this? Can you help with that? So, you know, being, you'd understand being a small business with only, you know, there are five of us here to send two people to go do something like that is kind of a hard demand for us. So we, we kind of stopped showing there, but yeah, we'll probably pop into the one, um, down, uh, in a couple of weeks here just to just to check it out because it's super close but yeah exhibiting is not really our thing to go do there we're going to be driving through um portland on our way back maybe we'll be able to stop by and say hi oh yeah that'd be great we'd love to give you a tour yeah show you show you around yeah i want to see you guys i want to stop by and see tony and ira at breadwinner and then if sasha's in town i'll stop by and see him and then we're going to head up to seattle to see my parents and kind of yeah. make a little trip of it yeah, the I-5 drive, essentially. Yeah, the I-5 corridor. Yeah, we're real close to Vanilla. We're only a block away, so. Oh, cool. Yeah. That'd make it easy. Oh, yeah. It's like a block as the crow flies, but oh, walking there is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's pretty yeah, tricky, but, but yeah. But it's in that part of town. Though, oh, yeah. So. so speaking of Chris King, uh, I noticed that some of the new bikes have the T-47. Um, is that kind of. The commitment to the bottom bracket for the lead out going forward? Yes, it is. Um, and the reason that I chose it was because, first of all, I like threaded bottom brackets. Um, and uh, so we bond in a titanium shell that's threaded. Um, and we've done a few things. We put metal in places where most carbon manufacturers might stay away from it. Um, but to us, it's we just felt it's important, and we do use metal. We don't use aluminum because we want to avoid any corrosion issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we have a T4, and the reason we chose that was because, frankly, you can put almost any crank in it. Um, it allows for um, easy access to the inside of the frame. We can get you know cables and wires and everything fished through nicely we also put axle guides in the dropouts our dropouts are compression molded and um we put titanium axle guides in those um, so that paint doesn't get ripped off and then we use a metal water bottle or steel water bottle um instead of aluminum water bottle we use uh brass cable guides and um where else do we have metal i think that's it the headset bearing seats are molded into the head tube. Um, so there's no place that um, on the bike where aluminum touches carbon with the exception of the derailleur hanger. Oh, that's um, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we put, um, we put uh, 3K on the inside and outside of the plies everywhere that the um, material is being machined, cut, or drilled so that there's no um, tearing away at the fibers yeah really limit the Um, tear out yeah we get we got it down to nothing pretty much that we can that we can visually see yeah no that's great 
And then we use, I was talking to Nick Crumpton the other day. He says he does two he drills, two holes per drill bit. Then the drill goes in the recycle. Yeah. <laughs> we so, did, we sounds did a, right. Yeah. Yeah. We get maybe a few more cuts, but not many. And we run them in the end or in the milling machine so we can run them really fast. Yeah. That's nice. You can um, speed them up. Yeah. That really helps a lot. And, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we pay attention to the little things and we don't try to save money by um, uh, trying to manufacture around costs. We try to, we just, if something needs to be done, we do it. We're not weight weenies about it. Our frames aren't hyper light and we don't want them to be, and they never will be because um, quality and ride characteristics uh, are really high priorities for us. We're not going to be making, you know, medium or high mod 600 gram frames. That's just yeah. not what we're into. Well, we noticed around here, we've evaluated what, almost 10, 10, 10 and a half thousand frames. And uh, those de- wow. little details you were mentioning really add up for a bike that lasts five years, 10 years or 30 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We appreciate all that because, it, you know, it means these bikes can last 30 years and carbon still has kind of a. I don't know, a little holdover bad stigma that we come across uh, from various people all the time. And it's just like, no, you can build a 30, 40 year bike, but it's a lot of little choices that get often overlooked. And it's exciting to hear you're making all the right choices. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad you agree. I am, you know, I I just want, they're expensive frames and I want the customers to get their money's worth. Yeah, that's That's amazing. That's appreciative. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know about you, Sean. We're kind of come. Oh, Sean's got another question. Sean has one last Sean has question. One last question. Kind of a fun one for you. Yeah. If you had kind of a million dollar open budget to put towards pursuit, would it be toward what would it be towards? Machines, people, new tools, new frame. Kind of an open, open treasure chest question for you. Wow, I think. Well, that's really hard. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. I think probably, um, you know, we could probably speed up. That's, it's hard to say. Um, there's definitely some machines I'd like to have that we don't have. I'd love to get a nice Eastman cutting table or some heated heated platen presses. Oh yeah. Um, or even a paint booth, bring painting in-house. Um, I'd also like to be able to improve our marketing, you know, so we can reach more people. Mm-hmm. Um, marketing is very expensive, and yeah. we did very little of it. But um, you sold out two years, so. Well, we didn't sell it this year. We only oh, last right. year. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, we do want to be bigger than 35 bikes. We just, we just don't want to grow too quickly well what happens is you grow you know and you can build 35 comfortably and then you sell 40 so then you're building 40 uncomfortably yeah or you bring in help that you can't afford and then you're dealing with money issues so we 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 want to have we want to turn away a whole bunch of people and when we see that we're turning away a lot of people every year or we're building up maybe we pre you know, maybe we sell out in July and then we start taking deposits for next year and we run into January one and we've got the whole season sold out. We can probably pretty safely say that we can bring somebody in. Yeah. But, 
but until we get to that point, I want to be conservative because I want this to be a fun place to work that everybody enjoys coming to without a lot of stress. Um, I really just want to make a, a place for people to do something that's healthy and good and fun and creative and people enjoy working there and we have a tight knit, um, uh, you know, family like environment and you know we all have really cool bikes <laughs> we ride a lot and when we go on trips we ride even more that's excellent yeah definitely my my final question for you is goes with the brand but what are you in pursuit of carl <laughs> we're always getting better cool continuous improvement yeah. Yeah, it's the never-ending pursuit of perfection, right? You'll never reach it. You just have to keep going. You have to pursue it. And um, it is an end in itself. I like the it. Pursuit. Fantastic. Well, that's all. I, that's all. We're uh, we just coming up on an hour here. So that's all I've got for you. Yeah, same here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. thank you so much, Carl. This has been just a joy of a conversation. Again, as Sean said, it's been really really amazing hearing in person how much importance you place on the small details uh it's really refreshing and yeah it was great to hear we can't say thanks enough for taking an hour to sit down with us it's been absolutely absolutely fantastic well thanks it's been fun and i appreciate your um inviting me to do it yeah yeah absolutely and then maybe uh you know maybe after after nabs or the reveal we can uh we can call you back and and do a little uh do a little checkup mm. You bet. And, um, and like I said, I'll, I'll, when, when I know when I'm going to be coming through Portland, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, get in touch with you guys. And if we can swing by and meet you face to face and see your shop and meet the rest of the gang, that'd be fun. Yeah. That'd be great. We'd love to see one of your bikes in person. Yeah. We'll have one with us too. Awesome. Well, yeah. cool. Well, uh, thanks again, Carl from, uh, from, both me and Sean, the rest of us here at Ruckus. Uh, this past hour has been spent with Carl Strong of Pursuit Cycles and Strong Frames fame. Um, Carl, where can people find you? They can find me at strongframes.com or pursuitcycles.com. We have Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Great. So definitely, definitely do yourself a favor um, the pursuit website is a wealth of information and it's very well done. So definitely go check that out. Follow them on social media, ask them all the questions, give them all the likes. Uh, they're definitely worth it. So thank you, Carl, uh, again, from, uh, us and all of our listeners uh, for joining the Fiberside chats. You bet. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks for listening to the Fiberside chats. If you've enjoyed this episode, do please like comment and share it. And also, go back and check out our old episodes. They can be found wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next time here on the Fiberside Chats.